Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Lawrence Simon. Um, I keep saying this. I have to have a funnier beginning, but that's okay. Uh, today, in the stories we live by, I'm going to talk about a story about the drugging of America's children. Uh, coincidentally, I really will talk about the drugging of America. And I'm not talking about the guys who fly up from South America to provide cocaine or people who grow marijuana and distribute it. I'm talking about the big drug companies and how Americans have been convinced uh, that the taking of very powerful mind-altering, body-altering drugs are a good solution to their problems. I'll focus on children. Now, I'm going to be making a presentation just like this one um, later this month to a group of concerned citizens and uh, I was flattered when they asked me, and I thought what I was going to do on this show, and this is what stimulated it, is to do a kind of dry run. So I'm going to do a dry run of this show uh, that I'm going to, or the presentation. I don't know how long it's going to take, and that's one of the reasons I want to see how this works. If there are any questions, I'm going to open the lines up at the end because I really do want to time this out. Um, I also want to have this on tape so that people who miss it and might want to hear it. Uh, and people who uh, might want to listen again uh, after the presentation can come back to it. It's very nice that this is all archived. Now, I'm not only going to speak about the drugs, but the social, moral, political, and economic consequences of our current use of drugs and the way in which our society is being shaped by these and other forces. And as I said in my, in my uh, blurb in the opening here, it's a catastrophe. So you know from the beginning which side of the discussion I'm on, and so I think it behooves me to make a pretty good case for what I'm uh, going to talk about. And to do this, I want to take a historical approach. Um, the social attitudes uh, today are very different than they were when I became a psychologist. I, was licensed, I got my Ph.D. in 1969, and I was licensed in 1970. And in 1970, Students uh, all over the country and in Europe were shutting down their universities in protest against the Vietnamese War. For those of you who are too young to remember it, it looked as if America could really come apart. Uh, the hard hats, that is the kind of conservative construction workers, were all wearing flags. American flags were uh, on the top of buildings that were being built. Uh, people were honking their horns on alternate Saturdays for the war, for against the war. There were millions of people out in the streets. And in 1970, four students at Kent State University, as part of a protest, were gunned down by the National Guard. And uh, that uh, put, put the, the, the protesters and the students in this country into a fury. We now are uh, five years into another war that every poll shows is as, uh, as absolutely um, uh, uh, as unpopular and maybe even more unpopular than the Vietnamese War, and yet there's nothing but deafening silence. And I did a show a couple of weeks ago, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, on the why I think uh, there are no um, protests, why there's no dissent. And anybody who's interested can go back to that. So I want to take a historical approach and talk it about personal terms because uh, I want to talk about my shaping as a psychologist and where I stand on this and how it came about and how I saw all of these fo events unfold. 
Now, let me start by saying every human being is a psychologist. Every human being recognizes something about themselves that they need to understand. Every human being has to get along with other people in one way or another. And therefore, every human being is a psychologist. Now, psychologists uh, and formally trained scientists like to say that everybody else is a scientist, in this case a psychologist, but are naive. And I'm not so particularly sure that uh, those of us uh, who were naive before our training became any much more sophisticated after our training, as I'll get to in a few moments. But everybody is a, a, is a psychologist. Now, as a psychologist, there are really two pieces to your psychology of people. One is a theory about how people change and grow and what it takes to influence them. Okay? So that I learned various theories as a psychotherapist about how to alter the behavior uh, that I was uh, presented with by people who came in and were called patients and given a diagnostic label uh, of some form of mental illness or another. But sitting behind that is your image of a human being. And every one of us has an image of other human beings. And those images can really fall into a number of categories. I can have an image of another human being and myself, uh, as, uh, as I do, as an active, creative force that has to get along with other people. That there's a kind of a balancing act that has to take place. That I'm unique and you're unique. No two of us are the same. We have something to say, something to create, something that we wish to leave after ourselves that is unique unto us. And at the same time, we want to be a part of the human family at different levels. So we have our own family, our community family, maybe our church, religious family. So, so there's a balancing act that's always going on in terms of my image of human beings. A crucial aspect of my image of human being is that we can choose. We have the capacity to make choice, and therefore we have the capacity to some degree to be free. And I don't uh, suggest for a second that we can be free in the way in which some of the writers in the 1950s said, you can do anything you want, you can rise above human condition. I recognize that the laws of physics and chemistry and biology prevail um, and that I am not totally free. But there's a, a degree of freedom, a degree of freedom, if I can find it within the context and the family and the social organizations in which I find myself, okay? So, but because I'm free to make choice, there are consequences to my choice, and therefore I'm also bound to be responsible. So my image of the human being is a creative individual who is simultaneously a part of the human family, and at the same time uh, 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 can make choices, but must take some kind of, inherently takes responsibility for their actions. Now, yes, you can say, but people don't take responsibility. Well, as I get to in a little bit, we can dehumanize ourselves or others. I don't have to see myself this image. I can see myself as a kind of an object or a puppet. I can see others as an animal. I can see them as not having choice, as demanding uh, a control that they're out of control, and people all over will treat others as objects. Uh, when a man says to a woman, you're a bitch, you're a cunt, he's dehumanized her. 
when a white says to a black, you're a nigger. He's dehumanized that individual. And there's words, hundreds and thousands of words that we use to dehumanize. And as I'll get to in a little bit, one of the most powerful of all the dehumanizing words is you're crazy. You don't have a mind, and therefore you can't choose, and you can't be creative. We have to control you. Right? That's my image. And in this poor, that's the image I reject is one of an it. So in my relationships, I can have what the philosopher Martin Buber said is an I-thou relationship, I and you, or I can have a relationship I and it. I can have the same relationship with myself. I can treat myself and talk about myself as an it, as an object, you see? Or I can treat myself as an individual who capable of choice, creativity, and, and, and someone who has, if I can develop the skills, the power to shape my life and make it different perhaps than the one that was given to me. I can change the story, the stories that I live by. And that's been the theme from the beginning. Now, when I went to uh, school and I became a psychologist, I was, I was caught in a kind of a conflict because the image that I had developed as a child through my Hebrew school training, through how my, I was treated by my parents, um, was not the same image that psychologists seem to hold of their subjects. And I can't really go into this. This is I'll do some you know another time. Uh, if you were a Skinnerian, uh, you were nothing but uh, you were modeled. Your behavior was modeled on a rat being reinforced with pellets of food as you as you pressed a bar someplace. That was the model. Classical and operant conditioning. If you're Freudian, uh, you, you often have the view of a human being as a kind of a hunting wolf, a hunting animal. Yes, I do believe we have powerful sexual needs, and I do believe that we're capable of killing others. But I believe we're also capable of writing poetry and music and, and, and doing wonderful and beautiful things. In addition to, to the more base, uh, uh, biologically driven uh, uh, urges that control behavior or, or, or affect behavior. Right? However, those images didn't bother me, in a sense, on an intellectual level, because when I started to, when, when I worked, when I uh, started to see what I called patients, um, I was free to treat them and they would treat me as human beings. And I discovered that if I didn't treat them as a human being with respect to help them understand themselves and make better choices and change their story in some way that led to more love, more dignity, more creativity, all of the things that I think so important. Uh, I, I, would be, uh, I would lose them or I wouldn't like them or they wouldn't like me. It would fall apart. But I was free to treat them this way. I didn't have to treat them any other way. And if I didn't treat them that way, it became my failure. And if they didn't treat me that way, because they had been so treated throughout their own lives as objects, as things, they had, had failed so badly to create this balance between a creative, free, uh, uh, responsible human being and an individual who is part of the larger group. Either they had been absorbed or they were uh, hearing voices and, and, and 
committing crimes, not that people commit voice, hear voices commit crimes necessarily, but they had run off the track, so to speak. Right? Now, what I discovered, to put words to later, is that when people didn't find this balance between their own voice and, 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 and submitting to the, to the needs of the group, when they didn't find this proper balance, whatever it was for them, because of how they were treated, because of, of injustice, because of subjected to terror, uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, poverty, racism, sexism, uh, when they couldn't find this balance, they ended up with a diagnosis. And indeed, that's what ended up being called mental illness. And that bothered me. Why call somebody sick if, in fact, they have adapted to a situation, if they've done their best in a situation, that I would wonder myself, could I have done as well under those circumstances with that kind, those pressures and those forces against me? Okay? That, however, didn't become an impediment to by becoming a psychologist until I read a book by Thomas Zass. Now, for those of you who are following this show, you uh, can go back to uh, November, and I interviewed Thomas Zass, and I made clear in that interview he was my hero. Uh, he wrote the book, The Myth of Mental Illness, in 1963-61. I read the revised edition sometime in the early 70s. Uh, it had not become part of my curriculum. I discovered it on my own. And it profoundly changed how I saw the world. Zas's argument is that for something to be an illness, it has to have a physical basis. It has to be organic. If it requires medical attention, it has to be, have an organic basis. And that, at that point, when he wrote the book, none of the diagnostic categories uh, were ever shown to have any biological basis whatsoever. They just weren't, right? And therefore, he said, they weren't real illnesses. They were pseudo-illnesses. They were make-believe illnesses. And what these diagnostic labels were, were uh, uh, moral judgments posing as medical illnesses. Instead of calling this behavior sinful, it was called sickness. Right? But it wasn't real sickness. And that was a lot to chew on. And as I chewed on it, I was still within my career uh, as a clinical psychologist. Now, let me back up for a second. Why was I called a clinical psychologist? What did I have to do with medicine? Absolutely nothing. When the field of clinical psychology was born, it was 1947. All kinds of interesting historical accidents that people don't understand. Before 1947, most of the work done with people who had been hospitalized uh, or had some kind of mental disturbance was done by psychiatrists. And psychiatrists have an MD degree. Before they were called psychiatrists in the last cent early part of the last century and the century before that, they were called mad doctors. Because basically the only people they worked with were people who had been so disturbed that they ended up being committed or when somebody wanted to get rid of them because they were so upsetting to them and they were declared to be mad that they would be put into these terrible places. And, and, and uh, if you want to read the history of this, a uh, book by Robert Whitaker called Mad in America. 
and you can go back in history. Uh, psychiatry has always been a brutalizing, controlling profession, a uh, kind of a group of secular priests uh, rather than real doctors. There's no real medicine and there's no real science in there if you're following the drift of what I'm saying. So, when 1947, there was a Boulder Conference, and what was happening is that World War II produced a huge number of soldiers returning who couldn't adjust to life. Fighting in a war usually creates a transformation in a human being, in most human beings, so that the balance they had between individual expression and fitting into society is lost. And, and most of us, and I, I, I spoke on Nikki uh, Starr's show some time ago. I really ought to do an individual show on that, uh, on how we ignore these soldiers. We don't listen to them. We want to get on with the next war. We want the next group of soldiers, uh, young people indoctrinated into the idea of the army and fighting war. Uh, I won't argue whether it's a necessity or not, but that's what we want. And we don't want to tell anybody the real truth of what happens to the personalities, the bodies, and the minds of soldiers. But whether they come back and we call them disturbed or they come back and they're better than they were before, no one comes back the same. But by World War II, war had become nothing but industrial slaughter. You know, the idea of the knights and, and going out on a field and fighting for honor and dignity and leaving the population alone. That went in World War I, when the Germans declared that war should be total warfare. And people were now slaughtered, and by World War I, more civilians were killed than in, in uh, any previous war, and more civilians were killed than soldiers. World War II was even worse. The civilian populations of whole countries were, were just absolutely decimated. And so these men came back, and the number of psychiatrists who could treat them were just too few. So psychologists, a new form of, used to kind of diagnose for the psychiatrists, uh, Rorschach blots and all kinds of stuff, they decided they wanted to be full-blown psychotherapists, and they then uh, sought a way of identifying themselves. And a big fight took place in Boulder between those who said, let's create our own psychological models, and those who said, listen, psychiatry has the high cards, let's follow psychiatry. And one of the tragedies, uh, 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 from my point of view, and for many others who are sensitive to this discussion, was they went along and we became little psychiatrists. And I can, when I came in 1970, and I was licensed by New York, and here, by the way, you want to hear peculiar I never went to medical school, but New York State licensed me to treat any and all forms of mental illness. Now, if there were real illnesses, how could a non-medical person treat them? Well, we talked to them. Most of the psychiatrists in that era also talked. They didn't drug. Most of them were trained in psychoanalysis. The only ones who drugged were the state hospital psychiatrists. And they really were the most poorly paid, poorly educated. They very often had the lowest M, uh, uh, boards. Uh, they were kind of the, the scut workers of the field. Um, anybody who was anybody went for a psychoanalytic degree and opened up a private practice, and that's where the glory and that's where the money and that's where the fun was, in effect. So 
while I struggled with the idea of mental illness and being called a clinical psychologist, because there's nothing clinical about anything I've ever done, I do see what I did uh, with people as a kind of personal education where I tried to create a situation in which people would be free to explore their feelings, their history, and out of that develop new skills so that they can make choice, they can form relationships that were more satisfying to them and for the people that they were uh, uh, living with or to live with, that they'd be better at sex, they'd make more money, all kinds of good stuff, but at the same time, not give up that individual voice, that individual creativity that I think is so essential to every single human being. That's why, by the way, so many people are going into therapy because they hate their jobs. It's all mechanical. It's all, all, all technological, and it has no kind of individual uh, aspect to it, no spirit. Uh, it's really quite, quite sad and quite tragic but I can't get involved with that because it will take me off my topic. So, I operated perfectly comfortable within the structure of being a clinical psychologist, perfectly comfortably within the structure of having to call people mentally ill. However, I could get around that. Okay? I could get time until we started to sign insurance forms. Now, there's a history here, too. When I first came into the field, psychotherapy was relatively free, cheap, cheap, not free, cheap. Charged $25, $30 for a session. People paid in cash. They paid a check, and that was the end of it. But as we became more high status and we got more licensing and we got more, or more visibility, we fought and gained uh, uh, access to insurance. At first, we could be covered by uh, uh, the health insurances if a psychiatrist or a physician signed our form, signed off for us. Otherwise, they didn't, uh, and uh, uh, we wouldn't get paid. But after a while, and I forget what year this was, we got our own uh, ability to sign our own forms. And boy, were we all happy without realizing this was a devil's pact because we had now taken a step deeper in to this whole psychiatric quagmire of having to call people bad names. Now, an issue here about children. When I first came into the field, nobody diagnosed a child mentally disturbed or mentally ill. By the way, when I first came into the field, there were only 30 or so mental illnesses listed in that, in that then little thin DSM, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illnesses. The book is now 50 times larger. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mental illnesses have been invented, not discovered, invented. Invented by committees of psychiatrists and psychologists. Uh, the DSM-5, I think, is out now and it has road rage disorder in it and all kinds of other garbage and crap that say you're sick uh, uh, if, you, if, you, okay? if, you, if you exhibit behaviors. You get people to finger on the road, cut them off, etc. Uh, bad behavior. But whether or not it represents a sickness or an illness or a true disorder, that's another story. Whether you not need medical treatment for that kind of behavior, I completely disagree with. So children weren't diagnosed unless they were childhood schizophrenics or severely autistic and ended up in institutions. Right? They weren't diagnosed. There were people 
uh, I remember a book I got from the book club I belonged to by a psychiatrist, Marie Despair. Uh, Marie Despair. Somebody is desperately trying to reach me, and I won't get off the phone until later. And so I'm going to let them do whatever they want to do. Uh, anyway, she said children don't have the mental development to become mentally ill. Okay, so so I wasn't bothered until the insurance. But even then, you could walk work around it. What most of us did was phony a diagnosis, adjustment disorder, or dysthymic. It was completely meaningless, completely meaningless to to everybody concerned. But get us got us our pay. Right? Next, the disaster hit in 1990, and how fast this disaster has washed down on all of us in our society. The disaster took place, and we didn't know it was happening, those of us. In 1990, the American Psychiatric Association announced the decade of the brain. And what we didn't know is that they had gotten together, the AMA, the American Psychiatric Association, had gotten together with the drug companies and decided that they were going to come out and say all mental disorders, the growing list, were all the result of some kind of brain problem, mostly a chemical imbalance in the brain. That's what they were going to say. Whether or not they believe this, or I don't know, but this is what the, 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 what the focus was. The end run of this was that suddenly psychiatrists were trying to take back their field. And I, again, I, I should make this clear. Most of the psychotherapists in the United States were psychologists and social workers. In fact, the largest number were social workers who could now sign insurance forms. They too made the devil's pact. And whereas social workers did social work at one time, helped people find the old age homes, uh, got them from the hospital, one hospital to another, did all kinds of, of, of work uh, relief work and, and uh, you know, watched, saw that children were be not being abused, kind of home visits, that kind of stuff. They now launched their own institutes and their own training, and they all opened up their offices, and they now were private practitioners curing mental illness as well. Psychiatrists were being wiped out. They were being forced to the barricades. But in this one felt swoop, the psychiatrists sought to take back their field and say social workers and psychologists are not real doctors, and since these are real medical problems, even though they were now calling them disorders because they couldn't prove that they were real illnesses, mental disorders, and not mental illnesses, uh, that we shouldn't be treating and they should. And if you know me from this show in the past, you know I'm just as critical and I'm just about to be as critical of psychologists as I am of the psychiatrists. Well, I may mean, not as critical. The psychologists went along with this. While they were devastated, none of them broke and said, maybe we should look at our position in relation to the people we work with, people who are suffering. It, it, it was a disaster. But the final coup de grace, the cutting of all of our throats, um, came when the deregulation took place. And people could now advertise, the drug companies could do direct-to-consumer advertising.
And I can't, I can't get out of my mind the ads that came on. Depression is a serious mental condition. Right? And Zoloft will cure this condition. And they would show, if you remember, if you're old enough, you can remember a few years back, they showed these two little things that looked like nerve endings that were supposed to be nerve endings and small amounts of chemical going from one to the other. And you add the Zoloft and it increases the little dots that were uh, moving back and forth. And that was supposedly going to be the cure for the depression because the depression was the result of this inability to have enough serotonin, which is a chemical transmitter in the brain. Well, I used to scream at the set and my wife would get upset with me because they would say, a, 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 a depression may be associated with a chemical imbalance. Those are the exact words. I memorized them. But Zoloft acts to correct this imbalance. What imbalance? There was no imbalance. There may be an imbalance, they said. They weren't able to prove there was an imbalance. And I'll talk a little bit about that towards the end of the show. But now the noose was, was starting to strangle all of us. The public never questioned any of this. And what began to happen... Hold on one second. Yes, I can't talk. I'm doing a broadcast. I'll call you later. I'm sorry. A friend came to the door. Somebody's trying to reach me on the phone. I'm going to have to find a place in a basement somewhere to do this incognito. Um, by the way... Somebody sent me a question, guest 277. Uh, I will get back to this when I finish uh, uh, this, this, this uh, harangue, if you will, in a few minutes. Uh, the noose began to tighten around us because people would now come into offices and say to the doctor, I want this medication, I want that medication. And the diagnosis would be made and the pills would be given and that would be it. The fact that these drugs didn't work on most people, some, yes, they felt better. The fact that it caused tremendous uh, uh, hardships, a, a physical illness, a terrible weight gain, the fact that the drugs were highly addictive, all of this was swept under the rug. Uh, it was at this time that the drug companies and their advertising people really began to trump the research people. The research people were really hand-in-glove. And rather than there a firewall between the R&D, the research and development people, the scientists, and the people who were supposed to sell this stuff, that collapsed. And again, uh, a wonderful book by David Healy called Let the Meet Prozac uh, was, was published. He worked for the drug companies, and he couldn't stand what he was watching. The, the phony results, the lies, the things that they knew were going on in people's lives. Uh, Healy's book dealt, and I'll talk about children, I've got to get back to children here, uh, with the fact that there were children going on these drugs or coming off these drugs who were committing suicide. And whether or not the drugs were causing the suicides or the homicides uh, wasn't clear. But certainly the correlation was such that these drugs had to be watched as a potential for leading to catastrophe. In fact, the two boys that uh, uh, in Colorado, the school in Colorado, Klebold um, uh, was one name, Littleton, Colorado, that terrible school massacre, both boys had been put on psychiatric drugs, SSRIs, before, three weeks before uh, the massacre. And many of the kids, one of whom was shot 
as actually suing the drug companies because he says that uh, Derek Liebold, uh was a gentle person until he went on those drugs. They are powerful stimulants. In fact, the profile Healy was showing us is that very similar to the effects of cocaine. Cocaine's a terrific drug for a lot of people, and a lot of people take it, although it's illegal. Okay? And it leads to all kinds of serious problems. But stimulant is a stimulant is a stimulant. The horror of all of this, and it's a horror, is that children were now being diagnosed with serious mental disorders. When I was a little boy, there were two sides to the report card. And depending upon what was going on in my parents' life, the right side, which led to, which talked about deportment, conduct, would be looked at even before my grades because after a while they assumed the grades would be okay. And my grades were good until I developed pimples, became horny. My father had died, and in junior high school my grades weren't so good. Uh, uh, terrible, terrible time for me. And studying and doing well in school was not, any, no, not high on my list. Thank God I wasn't diagnosed with anything because I'm sure I could have, been sh- have a, a whole host of diagnoses and drugs poured into me as a result. But anyway, uh, my grades were good. And was I respectful to my teachers? Did I get along with others? Could I work independently? In other words, if you went down the list, you would see that I was being judged in that balance from one side to the other side. Was I an individual working on my own, proceeding at my pace? Was I a part of the class? and part of the human family uh, that I had to belong to in order to survive and be nurtured. So, all of a sudden now, conduct disorder became an issue. If you break the rules, you don't make your bed, and you don't listen to your teacher, don't do your homework, oppositional defiant disorder. If you fidget in your seat and your attention span wanders for whatever the reason, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, All of these, you were told, were were the result of a chemical imbalance in the brain and therefore had to be treated as a chemical imbalance in the brain, a catastrophe. There are, at this point, 50 million adults, we estimate, on psychiatric drugs for, for, for varying kinds of unhappiness, confusion, difficulty in getting along with others, for whatever the reason, whether it's their responsibility or those they're getting along with, 10 million children, many of them on powerful stimulant drugs, and then being given drugs so that they could sleep because the stimulants don't let them sleep, and then appetite enhancers because the stimulants, and by the way, these were the same stimulants that back in the 70s were used as diet pills and found to be too addictive and too dangerous to be allowed to be used by, as diet pills. So they recycled them, not for adults losing weight, but for children who have a problem in school, a disaster. We're seeing children with high blood pressure, with enlarged hearts, and the media, the cowardly, craven media, never presents it. Why? Because they're afraid they'll lose the advertising dollars from the drug companies who control all of this with a very iron hand. But there's even more, and that's, oh, with this I'll start to close. The problem is not merely the drugs. The problem is taking a generation of people 
and changing them from citizens to patients. When the students were erupting in the late 60s, and I was part of that, I was already a teacher, I didn't, uh, uh, you know, it was kids, people 10 years younger than me uh, who actually, you know, closed down classes, etc. But I was active as a war protest. I was very much against that war. The belief was that if life was unfair, it was our obligation to make life fairer. We had to get rid of poverty. We had to get rid of racism. We had to get rid of sexism. We had to see that families could function in a way that they could do right by their children. Whatever theory we had, and again, there were all kinds of different views about what would help, you know, what parents should do, how they should discipline, how teachers should educate. But everybody agreed, or most of us agreed, if we were in control, if you will, and we really were the dominant social force, that if you improve a person's environment, you improve the functioning of the individual. Injustice, powerlessness, these were things that had to be corrected. No more. If you say that aberrant or unwanted behavior, because that's what we're talking about, is the result of a chemical imbalance, then there's no more injustice. There are no more abusive parents, bad teachers, overcrowded schools, no more poverty, no more racism, no more sexism, no more all of the things that we believe, and you could see it your own eyes when you work with people, screw them up. Get them off that track between a person who can create and a person who can relate. Ooh, look at that. I came up with with, 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 a, with a slogan, create and relate. All you had to do now was drug the child. Teachers are forever, parents are forever saying, let's make the classes smaller, improve the schools. Not anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. Just drug the crap out of the kids so that they sit there and do their work. And some of these drugs actually make a kid do that. There is no evidence to this day that there's anything biologically wrong with any of these children, either as individuals or as a class of individuals. And if something were to be found in an individual or a class of individuals, psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers wouldn't be allowed to get near these kids. They would be sent to real medical doctors for real medical treatment, not for drugging. These are not medicines. They are nothing but drugs, potent Toxic drugs. The DEA in 1998 said that Ritalin, the chemicals in Ritalin, the amphetamines, were more powerful and more addictive than cocaine. And we have millions upon millions of children ingesting this, lining up in school so that the school nurse can give them the, the, these waste products. There is no protest. This has been swallowed hook, line, and sinker. We don't know how to fight back. But uh, let me tell you as an individual what you can say to a doctor. Four questions you can ask a doctor. I think there are four, but anyway. Doctor, you've just told me that my child's behavior or my behavior is the result of a chemical imbalance. Would you please write down the name or names of those chemicals and the studies that demonstrated that these chemicals relate to my behavior? Question one. Question two, doctor, 
could you write down the studies that demonstrated the normal levels? What are the optimal levels of these chemicals in my brain or my body? I know what optimal glucose is that diagnoses uh, uh, normalcy from, from diabetes. I know what normal blood pressure is. I want to know what are the normal parameters of these drugs. Next question, doctor. I want you to tell me what is the level of chemical? What does it have to fall to or rise to before it is considered abnormal and predicts the behavior that's now being called a mental disorder or a brain problem? I want that question answered. And finally, doctor, the fourth question, what medical test did you perform on me or my child that demonstrates that we have a medical problem, a true medical problem. I want the results, and I would like a copy, like the rest of my blood tests. I went to the doctor last month, and I got in the mail a copy of my blood work, and it shows my glucose, and it shows my, my uh, calcium and my potassium, and a hundred different things, and there is a range given and anything that falls outside the range required a discussion with the doctor but he didn't take it because i behaved in a certain way it's because it's demonstrated to be a part of my physical condition okay that's the question that parents and people have to ask the doctors because all the rest is crap Guest 1227, one could argue that we are just more aware of mental struggles, thus the increase in the DSM. Well, I would agree we might be aware of mental struggles, but the struggles have always been there, and they weren't called mental disorders. They weren't given this label. Professionals weren't required to handle it. And the problem is if you read the DSM, and I advise you to read it, it is all medically sounding. You have to go to a doctor, a trained professional. Well, it, that's not true. We know that a good minister can help, a good friend if they can listen to your problems and not superimpose theirs, a good social worker, a good psychologist. You don't need this level of expertise for many of the problems in life. You see? Um, so you need a self-help group. You don't need that. So the DSM simply isn't simply a reflection of our struggles. It's the codification of our struggles, and it's saying that because the struggle is going on, there's something wrong with you. Struggle itself. See, Americans are supposed to be, according to the mental health system at this point, happy morons, and really nothing more. Don't protest. Don't try to change anything. Things are perfect the way they are, you see. Okay, no one wants to take responsibility for the children. Yeah, I think that's partly true. I think also it, it's deeper than that. Most families have two to three jobs that they're working on. Quite apart from the bullshit that you hear, that uh, there is all kinds of wonderful goodness taking place in our economy, uh, the rich are doing well. And I put myself closer to the rich than I do to the poor. The middle class is largely disappearing. There are people who are making real money and staying way ahead of inflation and have two houses and three cars and you know, whether they need all of this or not, but they're really doing okay. And then there are people who are struggling to put food on the table, and we don't have sympathy for them anymore because, hey, listen, they must be mentally ill. They probably need to be diagnosed and given drugs. 
So now I don't think that it's merely that no one takes responsibility for the children. I think there are so many people out there totally overwhelmed by the quality of their lives and the struggle that they're engaged in. Uh, uh, although I agree that there's a sense of responsibility that's given up to the chemicals once you accept the idea that this is beyond talking, this is beyond discipline, this is not something for the report card so that parents can deal with it, but that it has to be some kind of a, of a drug, a magical pill and a cure. Okay, I think that's going to be it for today. If anybody would like to call in, I would love to talk with them. Uh, what's the number? I'm going to close down the chat. Well, I can move the chat. No, I can't. All right, you can see my number there. Well, I think I'm tired. I think I've done enough. I want to get back to the people who have been calling me. Uh, I will do another show next week. I forget what it is at the moment. I got so wrapped up in this. And I can see I can do this in 40 minutes and terrific. So thank you. And until next Monday, this is Dr. Simon signing off.